Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Deuteronomy chapter 2. And this morning we will be working through 23 verses. Yes, you heard that right. 23 verses this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 20 or chapter 2 verses 1 to 23 will be where we focus our attention this morning. And if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. They will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession." You shall purchase food from them with money, and you may eat, that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you, you have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Elath. And Ezion Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Emim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered. And the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. As soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession." It is counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim, a people great and mighty, as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and settled in their place. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God, you may be seated. So on every single page in Scripture, a theme is repeated. A reality is set forth for our appreciation, our consideration, and a a theme to which we must submit our thoughts and our hearts. One of the most ubiquitous, meaning most repeated, most extensive, most everywhere, most inescapable facts and certainties given to us in Scripture, one of the most predominant and prevalent truths revealed to us in the Word of God is this. 
The Lord is sovereign over all things. And as we just sung, sang, whatever our God ordains is right. Sovereign here means that the will of God, His will is the, and purpose is both absolute and supreme. His will is the overriding reality in creation. He is the pinnacle and the center of all things. He is unchallengeable in his decrees. And he is the one who determines and effects and governs the entirety of creation according to his perfect will and toward his ordained goals. The Lord is sovereign over the placement and the movements of the heavenly bodies. He scatters them across the vast expanse of space to the far reaches of our universe. He rules over the stretches of the ocean. He governs all that happens above the waters and everything that happens under the waters. And even as he reigns over the colossal and cosmic aspects of creation, God also rules over the movements of the atoms we can't see, the cells, the microorganisms, as the late pastor R.C. Sproul was so fond of saying, there are no rogue or maverick molecules that are running or bumping around free of or outside of the Lord's sovereign control. The Lord sovereignly rules over each and every one of our lives, from the boundaries of our dwelling place to the times and the years of our lives, to the size of your bank account, to the house that we live in, to the people you marry or don't marry, to the children you have or don't have. The Lord rules over our hearts, our wills, and our choices. He turns hearts in the directions that he wills to turn them. Truly, all of creation is clay, and the Lord is the potter who shapes the clay, who fashions and forms that clay into the form that he pleases. It is this very sovereignty, as the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, this eternal power and divine nature of our God that so offends the peoples and the nations of the world. And while our culture will make every effort to suppress and to minimize the truth of God's absolute sovereignty and in its place elevate humanity both as a whole and as an individual, as individuals, into that pinnacle space that belongs to God alone, the truth is God's will is supreme, not ours. We might like to think that the one inviolable, untouchable, and sacred thing in all of creation is our will, but it isn't. The, Lord's, the Lord rules over the wills of man. There is only one undisputed, absolute, authoritative, unalterable irrevocable will, and that is God's. The Lord, the living and sovereign God, He determines the times and the boundaries of the nations. And He does so according to His perfect, wise, and good will. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching to the Greeks at Athens, said this in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He said, The Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Did you hear that? There are two things the Apostle Paul attributes here to the sovereign will of God with regards to the nations. First, their allotted periods, and second, the boundaries of their dwelling place. Allotted periods here refers to the Lord's determination of the times and seasons in which a nation exists. The times and seasons in which that nation is dispossessed of their lands, destroyed or absorbed into another nation. It speaks to the times of a nation's establishment, their growth in strength and their growth in power and in influence, and the times of that same nation's dwindling and disappearance. 
All of these times and seasons are decreed and ordained by the all-wise and all-powerful living God of heaven over heaven and earth. Paul also says that the Lord decrees the boundaries of our dwelling places, meaning the Lord is the one who determines where each nation will settle and reside. He determines how far their borders will extend. All of these also come to pass as they do by the Lord's perfect ordination. God raises up nations for his good purposes, and he gives them lands and territories as he will, but the Lord also wipes those nations from the world stage when either their purpose has been served or their iniquity, idolatry, and sin reaches its full measure, and God says, enough with you. This has been the world's cycle from the beginning, right? Where is Babylon today? Where is Assyria today? Where is Persia today? Where is Rome, Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Philistines? Where are they all today? God has taken them off the stage. In fact, Rome was once the most powerful nation on the planet with a coliseum that was unbelievable. Maybe some of you have gone to see it. At one point, that was the center of Power in the world. And now you can go and buy a ticket to the Colosseum for five or ten bucks. Why? The Lord's decree and ordination. The Lord also will raise up and establish nations to deal with his own people. Throughout Scripture we see it numerous times. And one example we find in Isaiah chapter 10, the Lord raised up Assyria, a brutal, powerful nation, to be the rod of his anger against his idolatrous, sinful people, Israel. We read in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, Woe to Assyria, this is the Lord speaking, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, and against a godless nation I send him, meaning Israel, and against the people of my wrath I command him. I command him to take spoil and to seize plunder and to tread down like the mire of the streets. But listen, Assyria does not so intend. And his heart does not so think. It is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. You see here, the Lord revealed through Isaiah that he had raised Assyria up to be the rod of his anger and justice against numerous sinful nations, not the least of which was Israel. Israel had turned from the Lord to the gods and idols of the nations and began worshiping those instead. And so God sent Assyria as the rod of his anger to carry off Israel into captivity. And while, notice in this text, while Assyria is the rod of the Lord's anger, sent by the Lord to accomplish his work, Assyria didn't go thinking to themselves, we are doing the Lord's work. No, their hearts were intent on brutality and terror. And so the Lord used their natural tendencies to accomplish his purpose, and the Lord would then still hold them accountable for their savagery, as the Lord said later on in Isaiah chapter 10, when the Lord has finished, this is verse 16, when the Lord has finished his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. The Lord God... God of hosts will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors. The Lord raised up Assyria to be the rod of his anger and then punished Assyria for their evil brutality and savagery. If you read the prophet Habakkuk, you'll see that he did the same thing with Babylon. Over and over and over again, we see that national intrigue is the Lord's domain. You see how powerful and sovereign the Lord is as he pushes everything toward his goal. And think about it. Should the Lord's return tarry for another millennia, not one of us in here knows which of the nations we see in our world today will join Babylon and Assyria and Rome as subjects to be read about in history books and historical landmarks to buy tickets to go and look at. 
The Lord rules over the nations that both reject him and do evil in his sight, and he rules over the nations that seek to honor him. He rules over every border, every leader, every people. The Lord founds and raises kingdoms and nations as he wills. And when the sins of one nation reaches their pinnacle, the Lord dispossesses them and leases his land to a new people who, if they aren't careful to walk in his ways and to heed his words, will themselves at some point be dispossessed also. As the Lord said to the nations through the prophet Jeremiah, If at any time, Jeremiah chapter 18, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns away from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I had intended to do to it. And if at any time concerning an, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So you see, according to the prophetic words of Jeremiah here, the greatest way for you and I to show concern for our nation, to show love to the peoples of our country, is to call the peoples of Canada, all peoples, everywhere, to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to hear the voice of the Lord, and to obey Him. We see, for example, that Assyria's judgment, the Lord brought judgment on Assyria, but we see that that judgment was deferred for a time because the prophet Jonah went into the nation of Assyria and said, repent. And the nation from top to bottom repented and the Lord relented in that generation of the disaster that he was going to bring on them. The same could happen here. And this divine rule, this reality that the Lord is the sovereign king over all peoples and all nations, while it might cause us a little bit of agitation to think about the sovereignty of God in these terms, the peoples of the Old Testament and the New, they used, this was a foundation for their hope and their confidence. They called on each other to sing about this reality. The sons of Korah in Psalm 47 called for the people of Israel, for example, and I quote in Psalm 47, verses 6 to 8, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nation and God sits on his holy throne. The sons of Korah called on the people of Israel to sing songs to the sovereign kingship of God. King David, Israel's greatest king, also cried out in Psalm 22, verses 28, kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. You can imagine him right after saying, and amen to that. And the Lord revealed through the prophet Daniel also, as Daniel was speaking to the kings in Babylon, the Lord revealed to him in Daniel 2.21, the Lord is the one who removes kings and the one who sets up kings. And three times in Daniel chapter 4, if you recall, repetition is important. Repetition means this is something that the Lord really wants you to get. And three times in Daniel chapter 4, we read this. The Lord God, the Most High God, rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And not to be outdone, the faithful Job also said of the Lord in Job chapter 12, verse 23, He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And as we learn to appreciate this truth that God is sovereign over the nations, what ought to then be the corresponding reality for us is that we need not be anxious or worried about things, how things will end up. About the wars and the rumors of wars, about border skirmishes, about nations bent on expanding their borders or destroying their neighbors. Because ultimately, all of it will fall out 
according to the Lord's ordination and decree. And as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 2, we see once again the Lord's sovereign dispensation of lands to the peoples of His choosing, along with His dispossessing and destroying of peoples from those same lands according to His sovereign will. Three times and a fourth in the past tense, we hear the Lord say through Moses to the people of Israel, I have given. Now again, remember, repetition is key. Three times, I have given, and a fourth, I, the Lord gave. Look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 2. I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Look at verse 9. I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Again, look at verse 19. I have given it, meaning the territory of Ammon, to the sons of Lot for a possession. And then in verse 12 also, with regards to Israel, Israel, we read in the past tense, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Four times the Lord shows himself to be the one who gives lands and takes lands away. Esau, Moab, Ammon, and Israel. All four nations were given land as a possession by the Lord's sovereign grace and choice. And this fourfold repetition of the Lord being the one who gives the land indicates and points to his so- the sovereign right of God over all the lands of the earth because all of them belong to him. And it is, it is his divine prerogative to give that land to whomever he wills and to take it from whomever he wills. So let's explore this theme throughout Deuteronomy chapter 2 as we're going to see Israel encounter three separate groups of people. The Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. As we begin in verse 1, we read, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. So after Israel's failed attempt to go up and take possession of Canaan, because they had disobeyed the Lord and were faithless to His command, their only recourse, the only option left to them, was to do what the Lord had commanded them to do after they lost their battle against the peoples of the land, which was... Chapter 1, verse 40, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so as you get to chapter 2, Moses will compress all of these accounts and keep them short. And he'll pass over a number of events that if you just flip over to the book of Deuteronomy, or I mean uh, Numbers, you will read all of the events that happened in these times. As they were traveling in the direction of the Red Sea during these days... There were more rebellions against Moses and Aaron. During these days, Miriam, Moses' sister, died. During these days, the people of Israel quarreled against Moses because there was no water. And so the Lord told Moses to speak to a rock, and that rock would then yield water for them, the nation, to drink. But Moses, in his anger over at the stubborn Israelites, struck that rock rock instead of speaking to it and for this act Moses himself was barred from entry into the promised land all of these take place during this time period and so after a time of dwelling in these wilderness regions the Lord said to Moses in verse 3 of Deuteronomy chapter 2 you've been traveling around this mountain long enough turn northward now that's a an important directional point When the Lord first told Israel to to turn away from Canaan and move in the direction of the Red Sea, the direction that they were headed in that point from the Red Sea towards the Red Sea was south and east. And now, after a period of time in Mount Seir and Kadesh Barnea, after the last of the wilderness generation has passed away, the time has now come for them to switch from moving southward to moving northward 
which is back in the direction of Canaan. The time had come for them to move in the opposite direction of the Red Sea because the Lord God is gracious and merciful and he will not leave his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unfulfilled. But now as they're traveling northward towards the land of Canaan, they're going to encounter some people groups. The first one they'll encounter are the Edomites, as we read in verse 4. Command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So in Genesis, if you go way back to Genesis, we are introduced to a man named Abraham. The Lord called Abraham out from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is early Babylon. And he said, go to a land that I will show you, and I will make your name great, and I will bless you. And the Lord promised to make him into a great nation. The Lord promised that Abraham's descendants would eventually inherit this land of Canaan. And so Abraham had a son, and that son's name was Isaac. And the Lord confirmed and reestablished or reaffirmed the promise that he made to Abraham to Isaac. And God continued to work his promise out. And Isaac himself had two sons by his wife, Rebekah. The two sons' names were Jacob and Esau. From Jacob descended the nation of Israel. And from Esau descended the nation of Edom. That's why when we get to the text here, you see the people of Esau or the Edomites referred to as your brothers. You see that phrase there? Your brothers. Now, the relationship between these two nations was turbulent and difficult. And even at this moment, the Lord told Israel that the Edomites, as you approach their boundaries, they're going to be afraid of you. So you got to be very careful, Israel. And you can understand why. Put yourself in the place of Edom for a second. As a nation of two million nomads passes close to your borders... Edom has no clue as to what Israel's intentions are. This could be, for all they know, the precursor to an attack, especially given the fact that they knew the prophetic words that Isaac had spoken to Esau regarding the relationship that would exist between Jacob or Israel and Esau and Edom six centuries earlier. Back in Genesis 27, verse 37, Isaac said to Esau, his son, Behold, I have given him, that means Jacob, I have made him Lord over you. And all his brothers, all your brothers, I have given to him for servants. Or all his brothers, meaning Esau. And again, in chapter 27 of Genesis, verses 39 and 40, we read this, as Isaac says to Esau, Behold, Away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By the sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. It's important. You shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. So the Edomites remembered these words. They were aware of the prophetic pronouncements given to to, to Esau by Isaac that they would one day be servants to the people of Israel and that their relationship with Israel would be characterized by various levels, by various degrees of hostility. And so here approaches Israel to their borders and maybe you can perhaps appreciate how the Edomites see this approach. It's for this reason that the Lord told Israel in verse five, 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy 2, be very careful. Do not contend with them. In other words, Israel, avoid any and all conflict with them at this time. Do nothing that might agitate Edom. And while the Edomites would eventually become bitter enemies to Israel, at this time, at this point in their relationship, the ties to Abraham and their relationship to Israel was to be respected. And also, another layer is the Lord, in commanding these things, was removing from Israel any covetous ambition that Israel might have about taking more land than God had given them. 
The Lord curtailed the possibility of that desire, making it clear to Israel in verse 5, I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Isaac, six centuries earlier, had prophesied that Esau's descendants would live away from the fatness of the earth in Genesis 27. And that's exactly where Mount Seir was. It was a difficult land. It was not like Canaan. In Canaan, you had big, huge clusters of grapes and pomegranates and figs and all sorts of water. It was an abundant land. But here, in Mount Seir, it was a difficult, dry land. And the Lord fulfilled the words and the prophetic, the prophetic words of Isaac with regards to Esau. And so here they were. Now, I want you to look more closely at the statement God made about Esau's land. In verse 5, I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Now notice that there are no time markers to that. The Lord didn't say, I've given it to them for this, ma- this, this long. So we don't know, at this point, how long the Lord would have the descendants of Esau live on that land. And that's different than the promises that God made to Abraham regarding Israel. Listen to how God spoke about the land with regards to Abraham's covenant descendants. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, we read this. The Lord said to Abraham, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession." and I will be their God. Do you see the difference between the two statements? There is a word missing in all of the statements that speak about the possession of land given to Moab, Ammon, and Esau. And that word is? Everlasting. Correct. Esau will not live in that land forever. In fact, Esau, Moab, and the Ammonites would ultimately be judged and destroyed by the Lord. The Lord declared through the prophet Ezekiel, for example, listen to his words in Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 9 and forward. I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier. I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession. So there's a transfer of the land, you see that? That the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments on Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off from man and beast. And I will make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan. Those are cities in Edom. They shall fall by the sword. And I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do it in Edom according to my anger, according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Some pretty tough words there. Edom would eventually fall by the sword as the Lord's wrath fell upon them, and they were dispossessed from the lands. But here, as Israel's traveling toward Canaan, at these early stages, the people of Israel were to recognize and to obey the Lord's word regarding Edom, Esau, and their lands. And this is what the Lord told them to do as they approached Edom. Verse 6, You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. Israel, as you approach Edom, do not covet or take anything unfairly from them. But instead, Israel, rely on me. Rely on me to provide for you like I've done this entire time you've been in the wilderness. We read it in verse 7, right? The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. In other words, I, the Lord, have blessed all of your efforts, Israel, as you've trekked through this wilderness for all of these years. 
I, the Lord, have been attentive to you, aware of your needs and then providing for them to the degree that you, my people, have lacked absolutely nothing. Can you imagine that? Homeless nomads wandering through a barren wilderness have lacked nothing. The only explanation for such a thing is the gracious care of the Lord for his people. And Nehemiah, recounting the Lord's faithfulness to this generation as Israel returned to the land after their exile, he summarized the the reality of this generation's needs and how the Lord cared for those needs. And I want you to see something interesting here. Deuteronomy chapter 9, or I mean Nehemiah chapter 9. Lord, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Three things are referenced here that the Lord did for Israel as they were traveling through the wilderness. He provided for them food. He provided for them water. He provided for them clothing. And if not for the Lord's providential care and blessing of the nation giving to them these things because he knew that they needed them, it wouldn't have simply been the over 20 generation that would have perished in the wilderness. It would have been the entire nation. And this forms the backdrop for one of the most precious promises from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As he went up on the mount and preached the greatest sermon ever preached, as the people probably approaching him were themselves consistently anxious about what they would drink and what they would eat and what they would wear, the Lord said to his disciples and the eager crowds that flocked to hear him on this day, in Matthew 6, 25, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing and he goes on in the same section and says do not be anxious saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you Do you see the three examples Jesus used in in his uh, sermon here? Food, what you will eat, water, what you will drink, clothing, what you will wear. Christ in this sermon was calling upon the Israelites who were listening to him on that day to recall the past faithfulness of the Lord to the nation. As if to say to them, You've already been here. You have experienced this before. And God has always proven faithful to you, hasn't he? You remember when he fed your fathers in the wilderness with manna? Do you remember when he caused water to pour out from a rock of all things? Do you remember when he ensured the longevity of your clothing, that your clothing never wore out for 40 years of traveling in the wilderness? The Lord took care of what you would eat and what you would drink and what you would wear. Why? Because your God pays attention to you. Your God is aware of your needs. Don't be anxious like that wilderness generation was. Don't be anxious like the Gentiles around you are. Uh, Instead, unlike those men who were faithlessly and primarily focused on gathering up for themselves those immediate necessities and in so doing turned away from God and acted faithlessly towards Him and forfeited the blessing of the land, you seek first the kingdom of God and trust Him to add all these things unto you. Not speaking against insurance policies, 
We should probably all have insurance policies, but there is no greater insurance policy than that given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these will be given to you. Food, water, clothing. And how does one seek the kingdom of God? One seeks the kingdom of God by bowing their knee to the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. By turning to him in faith, repenting of sin, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Entering into that kingdom by grace through faith in Christ. And having him attend to your needs as you focus primarily on loving, serving, worshiping, and obeying him. But as Israel passed by the borders of Edom, Numbers, the book of Numbers gives us greater detail into what happened or what took place. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 14 to 21, we read, Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please, let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But Edom said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Again, as Isaac prophesied six centuries earlier regarding Esau in chapter 27, verse 40 of Genesis, by the sword, by your sword you shall live, here we see the fulfillment of that prophecy as Edom is a suspicious and warlike people. And so Israel, in response, as we read in Deuteronomy 2, verse 8, went on away from the brothers, from our brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Elath to Ezion Geber, and we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. So people number two. People number one, Edom. People number two, Moab. And so once again, we encounter a people who are connected, although a lot more loosely, to their father Abraham. While Esau descended from the brother of Jacob, or the brother Isaac's son, right, from Moses' lineage, direct lineage, Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot. Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And the beginning of these two nations is quite the horror story, if you recall, as Lot fled from Sodom in the days when the Lord destroyed the city because of its wicked, evil, sexual deviance. He destroyed the city by raining down fire from heaven upon the cities in the valley, Sodom, Gomorrah, and a couple of others, turning what was once a well-watered and pleasant land into a wasteland of sulfur and salt. And Lot went and lived in the hills with his two daughters. And these daughters, after enduring the destruction of the city they once lived in, after enduring the death of their fiancés who had lived in Sodom, thought that the only option they had left with regards to bearing children and raising those children was to get their father stumble-bum drunk and sleep with him. Which both daughters revoltingly did. And according to Genesis 19, the first daughter bore a son and called his name Moab, 
And as Genesis 19 records, he is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger daughter also conceived and bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So not a great lineage story for these two nations. But even so, as Israel is traveling northward to Canaan, as they approach the land of Moab, the Lord said to them about Moab in verse 9, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. Now, Numbers chapters 22 to 25 will describe the events that took place as Israel remained at the borders or camped in the plains of Moab during this time. Moab, it tells us in Numbers 22:3, was in great dread of the people because there were, they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. So again, you've got this nation of two million people camped in your wilderness right on your borders. And so what did Moab do? They, went, they did two things. First, the king of Moab hired a professional seer or oracle or psychic named Balaam to go out and curse the people of Israel. But the Lord kept intervening, and every time Balaam went to try and curse, to pronounce curses on the nation of Israel, God took hold of his mouth, and all that came out was blessing. And so the king of Moab kept getting more and more irate at this man. It was also during this time, as Israel was camped on their borders, that Moab used strategy number two. As Moab enticed the men of Israel, as according to Numbers chapter, chapter 25, verse 1, the men of Israel, Moab enticed the men of Israel to whore with their daughters. That's the phrase used. And these women invited Israelite men to the sacrifices of their gods. And the Israelites ended up attending those sacrifices and committing themselves horrible acts of blasphemy and idolatry as well as gross, wicked sin with these women. And for these deeds, as Israel was camped there, the Lord sent a plague on Israel that killed 24,000 Israelites. And the Lord commanded Moses also to strike down the people who, Numbers 25, 18, harassed them with their wiles with which they beguiled Israel. There's a lesson to be learned here. See, the Israelites were told not to show Moab any sort of military hostility. But that did not mean that Israel should just go, therefore, and engage in sexual sin and idolatry with those people. Just because you and I, for example, are called to go into the world, to become all things to all people so that we might win some to Jesus, doesn't mean we become like the world or that we take part in the sins of the world. We don't go into the world with the purpose, for the purpose of becoming like it. We don't go into the world with the purpose of becoming friends with the world. We don't go into the world to engage with his practices, practices under the guise of witnessing. Over the years, I've heard so much of this, so many excuses from professing Christians as to why it's permissible for them to be engaged in worldliness and sinful conduct because I'm a witness, they'll say. I had one student tell me that he went to the bars and the clubs for that reason once. And then he added, as if this was some sort of mic drop, that's where Jesus would have gone. He would have gone where the sinners were. I don't know if any of you ever heard that before. Jesus would have gone where the sinners were. To which I responded, yes. Jesus went to where the sinners were. But when he went to where the sinners were, they heard the good news and got saved. He didn't get drunk and dance with them like you do. That's not a witness. That's whoring with the daughters of Moab and committing adultery against the Lord. Saints, you and I must be very careful 
that the call given to us to avoid contending with and harassing Moab or the world doesn't turn into our whoring with Moab or the world. At all times, we must remember the consistent New Testament warning. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? The answer is none. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none. The Apostle Paul will say we must remain separate and distinct as God's people in this world as those tasked with making disciples of the world. We don't go into the world to become like it. We go into the world in order to bring people out and into the kingdom of God. And as Israel encamped on the borders, they should have been a nation that worshipped God distinctly, primarily, and then gave that as an example to the Moabites instead of going into Moab and becoming like Moab. And as the Israelites moved on from there, they went over the brook Zered, as verse 13 tells us. And once again, the Lord commands the Israelites as they approach a third group of people, the Ammonites. Do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So again, in all three encounters, the Lord spoke to the people of Israel the same words. I have not I have given them the land they currently reside in as a possession, and you may not harass or contend with them, because I am not, I will not give any of those lands to you. Instead, Israel, you continue on your journey towards Canaan to the good land that I am going to give to you. So Moses, as he describes these encounters, also continues to expand upon the sovereignty of God in all of these things as he provides for those readers who, reading this, might ask themselves, well, how did Edom and Moab and Ammon come to live in the lands that God had given to them as a possession? How did the Lord bring, give it to them? How did he sovereignly work in and among the peoples of those lands to bring those three nations into those territories? And what did he do with the peoples who populated those lands before Edom and Moab and Ammon moved in? Well, you see in verse 10, the land of Ar, where Moab lived, is described like this. The Emim formerly, formerly lived there, a people great and mighty, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Emim. So the lands that the... Moabites went in to take possession of, had been previously occupied by a group called the Rephaim. You see that, right, in verse 10? That title is a catch-all title that describes all of the different groups of really large giants, giant men. The word actually means giants and fearsome ones. People like uh, Goliath, for example, a whole group of them. The Emim, along with this other group, the Anakim, are both described as being Rephaim, or giants and fearsome ones. The Anakim were the sons of a man named Anak. And interestingly, if you want to list just an aside, a little historical tidbit, this man and his people were known to and recorded in ancient Egyptian writings. It was a common practice in ancient Egypt to write the names of your enemies on a piece of pottery or on a figurine for the superstitious pur uh, purpose of taking that figurine and breaking it on the ground, believing that doing so would bring a curse upon the enemy listed on that figurine or pottery. One such, on one such piece, recovered piece of pottery that is dated back to the 19th century B.C., meaning 4,000 years ago, we find the names of three men. Three men who ruled a group called the Lyanak, or the Anakim. And on, that, that shows that the Anakim and the Egyptians weren't on good terms. On one of the three names listed on this pottery is the name Yamim, which is the Egyptian form of Emim. These men are these are men of historical records, as are all the peoples and events recorded in Scripture. 
And so what happened to these Rephaim, or giant and fearsome ones? The historical interlude given to us in verse 20 of Deuteronomy 2 provides us a little more information. In uh, reference to the land given to Ammon, it says, It is also counted as a land of the Rephaim. The Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zamzamim. So the Moabites and the Ammonites both had different names for this same group of people these giants, these fearsome ones that populated their lands prior to themselves. The Moabites called them the Emim, the Ammonites called them the Zamzamim. These are both considered Rephaim, Rephaim being the catch-all term. And in verse 21, we read this. They were a people great and many and tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their lands. So how did Moab and Ammon come to live in the land given to them as a possession? The Lord went before them and destroyed the Rephaim who lived in those lands before they did, so that both Moab and Ammon could go up into those lands, defeat the inhabitants, and settle in that land in their place. All of this is the Lord's doing as was the Lord's work on behalf of the Edomites in their going up and acquiring Mount Seir. You read in verse 12 of Deuteronomy 2, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. And again, in verse 22, drop your eyes down to verse 22, as the Lord did for the people of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites before them and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. Do you see the hand of the Lord constantly at work in the destroying of peoples from a land and then the other people going up and dispossessing those people and then settling in that land? It's all the Lord's doing. All of these raising up and putting down of nations and peoples is the domain of our Lord. It was the Lord who went before Moab and Ammon and Edom to destroy the inhabitants of the lands that were of the the inhabitants of the lands that were there prior to them getting there in order to give that land to those nations as a possession. It was also the same for Israelites who would go up and take the land of Canaan, conquering the peoples who lived there, destroying them, dispossessing them, and settling the land in their place. God even used and worked among the pagan nations who had no connection to Abraham. In verse 23, we're introduced this one little line. It seems like it's out of place, right? We're introduced to this group, the Kaphtarim who eventually became known by another name in Scripture, the Philistines. God used this nation to destroy and to displace the Avim. They were another Anakim-like people, and this aided Moab and Ammon in the reception of their own lands. So God was working on all of these things behind the scenes. The Lord truly is sovereign over all the nations and all the peoples of the world. The Lord is committed to the fulfillment of His word and the fulfillment of His will and His purpose. And in so doing, brought Edom, Moab, and Ammon, descendants and relations to Abraham, who are not the covenant people of God, to the place where they destroyed and dispossessed more powerful nations than they and brought them in, each of them into a land that He gave them for their homes for a temporary period of time. How much more would God do this for his people Israel to whom he's given the land as an everlasting possession? The Lord went ahead of Israel as they went up and took possession of the land under Joshua by battering every obstacle in their path, by laying low peoples who are stronger and mightier than them. And all of this is a picture for you and I, a pointer for you and I of the Lord's commitment to bringing all of you who have truly turned to Jesus Christ in faith into the eternal promised land. The Lord has destroyed the great obstacles and barriers to our life with the Lord. The Lord has destroyed the, demolished the giant, the fearsome one, sin and its consequences in and for all who trust in Jesus Christ. 
And if the Lord would bring Edom, Moab, and them into their lands, and if the Lord would bring Israel into those lands, how much more will our God who loves his people, our God who is faithful to his word, our God who is mighty to save in a far greater way than he has with the nations of the earth, bring all of us, all of us who have been adopted into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus, how much more will he be committed to beating down all of the obstacles and bringing us safely home? Safely home to the city whose builder and whose architect is God. If I can leave you with anything this morning, all that you heard in here might be a little jarring and jolting, a little bit different maybe than how you've pictured the Lord. But the Lord never changes. This is the Lord, sovereign over all things. But all of this is designed by the Lord. It's recorded for us by the Lord as a foundation for our encouragement and our increased confidence in the power, the power, the wonder-working power, we're not singing that song, of the Lord. All to His great glory. Father, we praise you and we thank you for being the God who is sovereign over the nations. And I ask that you would allow that truth to wash over us and to permeate our souls so that as the world agitates and things happen all over the planet all the time, it seems to never end, that we who are in Christ wouldn't have to be so anxious about all of these things, but that we would know that you are God, you are all-powerful, nothing can thwart your will, everything happens according to your good plan and purpose, and we can live content and filled with peace as we go into the world in obedience and labor to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would not allow our eyes to be taken off these two things, honoring and worshiping you, and making disciples. Let us be the people of no fear. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.